We're going to read a text this morning uh, from the Gospel of Luke. This is uh, Luke chapter 23. We're going to start reading at verse 32. This is, of course, the crucifixion. It says, Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. And they offered him wine vinegar, and they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Father, would you guide us as we reflect on these words together? And uh, as Jake prayed, Lord, speak to us in ways that change us and uh, draw us to be the men, the women uh, that you want us to be. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I heard a message on this passage by Andy Stanley. And uh, this, you know, true confession, some of the points that I'm making in this message actually come from him. If you want to know that, where that sermon is, I can tell you, and he does it better than I'm going to do it. <laughs> but uh, he makes the point in that sermon that often it is the case for many who believe in God that when life is good, we think God is good. Hmm, kind of interesting. Also often the case that when life is bad or life is being difficult, we think God is bad or being difficult. Uh, it's the problem of evil is what that is. This, this thing we wrestle with, the problem of evil. Tim Keller says the problem of evil, the fact that things like natural disasters or humans being cruel to other humans or human suffering are so prevalent that it is by far today the number one objection that people have with regard to the idea of there being a God or certainly there being a good God. And the truth be told, uh, for people who believe in God, when we experience tragedy, when we experience hardship, when we go through one of those episodes where it feels to us like the death of a dream, well, then we look around and we see others enjoying life. You know, uh, they've got a good, I don't. We see others prospering or we see others being blessed. Even people who don't know God and make no bones about it, we wonder where in the world is God? Where in the world is he? 
Uh, it's kind of what the psalmist felt. If you've ever read Psalm 73, the psalmist is wrestling with this problem. And you get the sense in this tension there that he's nearly thinking of walking away from God. That's where he has come in this debate. Uh, in Psalm 73, we read, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Everything is going well for them. And then the psalmist says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. Unfair is what he's saying. I look around and life is unfair. And if we're honest, um, we would all have to admit that that is the way life seems sometimes. Um, this morning, I want to sit with this idea that things are not always as they seem. And, and life or what happens to us in life is often not a good indicator of who or what God is like. Um, the criminals that we just read about or at least one of them, is about to make this discovery. Uh, they were almost certainly asking themselves, where in the world is God, you know, as they're hanging on a cross? Where in the world is God in this? Where is he in the midst of this mess which I call my life? And uh, we don't know much about these two. We don't know their names. We don't know their families. We don't know their ages. Uh, we don't know uh, their friends. All of that unknown to us. How did they become criminals? I mean, what led them into a life of crime? We don't know. What we do know is their lives certainly are a mess, fair to say, a big mess. They got caught stealing something, maybe something really precious. Um, Luke calls them criminals. Matthew actually tells us they are robbers. They are thieves. And uh, for some time, once again, we don't know how long, they've been in a Roman jail being held, you know, awaiting trial, if you will, awaiting a sentence of some sort. What's interesting is that the crime of robbery wasn't usually punished by crucifixion. That's pretty severe. Um, if a thief was caught, uh, oftentimes they'd be killed on the spot by the catcher, right? That, that would happen frequently. But if that didn't happen, they were more often... Uh, sentenced to reimburse uh, the value of what they took, sometimes four, five, six times the value of what they had stolen. Other times they were subjected to scourging, which could be almost unto death. It was a, it was a tough beating. Uh, in some cases, uh, they were subject to mutilation, uh, cutting off a limb that would then prevent them from being able to commit the crime Again, oftentimes, too, in the Roman Empire, they would be subject to serving as a slave on a Roman galley. There they could be put to use, right? And you didn't live very long being a rower in a Roman galley. It was almost a sentence to death. But not our robbers, which probably means there's some kind of special case. I mean, why this sentence? Uh, perhaps they were so violent or they were so uncontrollable or so unmanageable or so incorrigible that there was little else the Romans could do with them. Uh, it appears their only value to Rome was to use them as an example of the futility of breaking Roman law, right? So these men have been condemned to death and they will be crucified as a warning to anyone who would defy Roman law, Roman authority. Now, these men had certainly seen other crucifixions. Pretty much everybody had. Uh, they had to have known what was coming. Blood and guts and gore is what was coming. The beatings, which almost always preceded crucifixions, they would be enduring that. The agonizing death of suffocation, they would be enduring that. They knew that this was going to be a bad day. Uh, this was a bad way to die. You've heard, I'm sure, some of the details. A slow and painful death. 
And it appears from their actions, it appears from their anger, it appears from their insults and their curses to the onlookers who were watching the crucifixion, they had decided they were not going to go quietly. They just weren't. And, um, of course, once dead, they would be peeled off the cross. They would be carted down to the south of the city, to the Valley of Gehenna, uh, which was the city dump. And there their bodies would be thrown on the dump with all the other city garbage. And these men, for whatever reason, had no mourners. They had no friends to bury them who were going to come by the dump, get their bodies and take them to bury them. No hope of deliverance and, and seemingly no God to save them. So where in the world is God? God, where are you? And so on the morning of the day of their crucifixion, these two discover there's going to be somebody else crucified alongside them. Uh, Somebody they had no doubt heard of, somebody they had probably seen. They discovered that Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, had been condemned to death and he too would be crucified with them. And that meant, of course, there would probably be a crowd to witness these crucifixions, whereas otherwise, probably not. Not many. Uh, Nobody really cared about these two robbers, apparently. And uh, so except for an occasional passerby, they would have been crucified and almost crucified alone, some soldiers and some passersby. But the good news for the robbers was they'd have an audience at least, and they'd have people to insult and people to mock and to ridicule. They could be defiant, right? Defiant in life, defiant in death. And so... The crowds do come. Matthew tells us the chief priests are there. Uh, The teachers of the law are there. Uh, The elders are there. These are all Jewish dignitaries. These are notables, right? These are powerful people have come out to witness this crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus. John tells us that the disciples were there. Uh, Whether all of them, we don't know, but most of the disciples were probably there. John tells us that relatives were there. Jesus' mother and Jesus' aunt were there. Mary, the wife of Clopas, was there. Mary Magdalene was there. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the Pharisee who had talked to Jesus at night, was there. Simon of Cyrene was there. And then Luke tells us, too, that a large number of people followed him, followed Jesus, including women who mourned and wailed for him. So there's a lot of loud wailing going on, too, at the site, at the scene of the cross. And so some mourned Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, Some were there probably in silent shock. Probably didn't even find it within them to say anything. Others were just there to watch. You know, we do love a good wreck, don't we? When something uh, of wreckage is going on, we slow down the vehicle to take a look. Others were there to gloat, frankly, and gloat they did. They reviled Jesus. These are the words we find in Scripture. Reviled, mocked, insulted, and sneered at him. Those are the words descriptive of what some of the people were doing at the cross. They said, hey, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, let him save himself. Others said, if you are the king of the Jews, you know, like the sign, well, then again, save yourself. Prove it. And so the focus of the crowds was, it was on Jesus, as you would expect. And nobody cared about the robbers. Nobody paid them much attention. And we can only guess how that might have made them feel. Um, You're dying a painful death. Nobody seems to notice or care about you or what you're enduring. Certainly no one is mourning for them, no one that is mentioned. Uh, Maybe it made them angry. Maybe it made them resent the Jewish rabbi, Jesus, who was hanging there between them. 
We don't exactly know, but what we do know is this. For some reason, they turned their anger and their resentment and their hatred toward Jesus as well. Both of them did. Matthew tells us that in the same way, the robbers, plural, both of them, who were crucified with him, also heaped insults on him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. So at least early on, these robbers are joining in with the others in insulting and mocking and ridiculing Jesus. That's the picture. And the scene that morning was an ugly one. Uh, The smell of blood, the smell of urine, the smell of feces. When you're hanging on a cross, oftentimes for many hours before you die, you know, the bowels empty, uh, the sight and the, the, the smells are terrible. Oftentimes, people dying on a cross would also find themselves sick to their stomach. The smells were awful. The sounds, terrible. Angry yelling from the crowd, sometimes from the people on the cross. Mourning onlookers, uh, wailing. And that had a form in, the, in an ancient uh, Semitic culture of, of being loud and shrill. Men dying. It's an awful scene. And yet it's in the midst of all that really chaotic mess that these criminals hear something totally, absolutely shocking. Probably something no one had ever heard at the scene of a crucifixion before. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. While the Roman soldiers gambled to divide up Jesus' clothing, while his enemies are celebrating this victory and they're gloating and they're mocking him, while the robbers are insulting him, Jesus from the cross prays for them. People who have persistently tried to to publicly humiliate him, people who have tried to trick him with questions, people who've tried to turn folks away from him, people who have tried behind the scenes to stop his ministry any way possible. People with the most to gain from Jesus' death. Because with Jesus gone, they would hold on to power, you see. With Jesus gone, nobody challenges their authority. Nobody is performing embarrassing miracles. Can you imagine how often as the chief priest and the Sadducees uh, watched Jesus teach or, or heal or perform miracles, how frustrating that would be to the group that can't heal or perform any miracles and the people are hanging on every word that Jesus speaks. They wanted to put an end, a stop to Jesus. That's why they would always come up with these kind of questions that would get him in trouble, gotcha kinds of questions, right? And Jesus would answer them with this humiliating, insightful answer and make them look even worse. Do you remember the uh, tax debate that they had? Jesus is asked, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This was a hot topic. Uh, Is it right to pay taxes? And he saw through their duplicity, we read, and, and he says to them, well, show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. And he said to them, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Doesn't want to pay taxes either, I understand. (laughs) They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public and astonished by his answer. Can you just read between the lines here? They became silent. We can't even trick him. We can't even capture him. We can't even get him. We can't even turn the crowds from him when we want to. 
Time and time again, these religious rulers wanted to arrest Jesus, get rid of him, but couldn't because they feared the people. But now they had no need to fear the crowds. Jesus was dying and Jesus was weak and Jesus would be finally out of the way and it seems that finally the ruling authorities had won. But again, things are not always as they seem, right? And so meanwhile, the soldiers are mocking Jesus. They had placed this sign, the sign that Pilate had declared needed to be made and they had put it above his head. It said, this is the king of the Jews and the Jews didn't want that sign up there. In fact, they said, don't put that sign up there. Say that he claimed to be king of the Jews and, and, and Pilate says, nope. And I, I really get the sense he's sort of needling them a little bit. At least that's part of what Pilate's doing. And probably, too, he wanted everyone to know that this was what happens to someone who claims to be a king and disturbs the peace, right? The, the rule, the reign of the Roman Empire. And so the soldiers used this sign to mock Jesus. Well, Jesus, if you are the king of the Jews, well, then come on, show us something. Save yourself, you know. And as if all this wasn't enough, you've got even now the robbers, one on the left, one on the right, and both of them are insulting him as well. Maybe because while they were kind of refusing to go quietly, here was Jesus doing just the opposite. Just the opposite. I mean, to watch Jesus, you get the sense that he's sort of laying down his life. That he is calmly resigned to dying. You remember Pilate's question to Jesus in the trial phase of this? He says, don't, because Jesus wasn't answering all of Pilate's questions. So Pilate says, well, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? You better answer me is what Pilate is saying. And Jesus responds by saying, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. From my father, my heavenly father. That's what he's saying. There's no defiance there though. Uh, there is just this steel-like determination to trust that the Father is in control. It's remarkable, really. Luke tells us that one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. And again, as I said earlier, Matthew makes it clear that both robbers were actually in the beginning hurling insults at him. They're saying, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you a miracle worker? Hey, we need a miracle right now. Aren't you supposed to be able to do something about this? If you are the Messiah, then this wouldn't be happening to you, right? If there was a just and a righteous God, this would not be happening to any of us. So save yourself. And oh yeah, save us is what they say. But you aren't the Christ, are you? And you can't save yourself and you certainly can't save us. And amidst the, in the midst of all this cacophony of sounds and smells and hatred and anger, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And I guess this is Jesus practicing what he preaches. I mean, he had taught his disciples to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Really, Jesus? Pray for them who crucify you? I guess so. Now, here's what is really interesting to me in this text. If at any time during these events that are unfolding... 
Either of these criminals had asked the kind of elephant in the room question. You know that question I mentioned before? Where in the world is God in this mess? Where are you, God? What would the right answer have been? Well, he's about 10 feet away. He's to their left or to the right. That's, that's where God was in this mess. Just a few feet away. You see, things are not always as they seem. Even here in all this mess, God was working for good. One of the criminals actually stops shouting and hurling insults. Something starts to trouble him, and uh, he starts to sense that there is something strangely different about this Jewish rabbi, about the guy who's there in the middle. And he hears Jesus say, Father, forgive them, and it dawns on him. Nobody says that. Nobody thinks that. Nobody acts that way while they are unjustly dying on a cross. Only a truly, remarkably, incredibly righteous man would say such a thing. And the thief starts to realize, I've had this whole thing wrong. The whole time. This really is a righteous man. And if he's a righteous man, he really is sent from God. And if he really is sent from God, then he really is the Messiah. And so this thief really has a complete change of heart. And he says to the other thief, he rebukes him. He says, shut up. Stop it. Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? What he's saying is, don't you see that here is a man facing the same sentence as us, but he has not abandoned his faith in the Father, in his God. He is suffering unjustly and yet somehow holds on to his faith and to his trust that the heavenly Father has this under control. He is suffering the same way that we are and yet he is still able to address God as Father. The big point, this is a man who has not drawn conclusions about God based on life and what others have done and are doing to him. And the thief says, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And suddenly this thief is seeing Jesus in a way that really nobody else in the crowd, hardly anybody else in the crowd uh, is able to, to identify Jesus this way. It's amazing to me that Jesus' last conversation with a human being, someone on earth uh, before he dies, is with a robber. It is with a, a thief, not a righteous man, not a respectable man, not a leader, not a person of note. He could be talking to any of these prestigious uh, individuals who are there watching and mocking, but he doesn't. He has a conversation with a thief, a man who by his own admission deserves to die. That's who Jesus decides to talk to. I guess it's really true he came to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus' interaction with this man is very brief, but it leads the thief to the conclusion that if an innocent man can face the ultimate injustice of life and continue to maintain faith in God and not just some distant intellectual awareness kind of faith, but an intimate faith, Father... Well, then how much more should a guilty guy, a guy who deserves to die, how much more should that man look to God, trust in God, cling to God, cry out to God 
(laughs) as his only dying hope. And at this point, the thief is really a different man than the one who was first nailed to a cross. He's no longer a defiant, angry thief. He's actually become a, a wholly surrendered supplicant. He prays, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he prays. And again, that is a request. It's not a command. It's, it's, it's a dying man's last request. Remember me when you come into your kingdom because I now understand. Yes, my life has been a mess. Yes, my life is ending. But yes, you are with me right here, right now doing something about my mess. Jesus, I've got literally nothing to bring. I've got literally nothing to offer to you, but would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And that right there, understand that is Jesus' favorite prayer to answer. It's the prayer of supplication. Humble, desperate prayer. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And I want you to notice Jesus' thoughts about this thief, Jesus' love for this thief, Jesus' desires for this thief are not rightly reflected in what the thief is experiencing in these circumstances. In other words, while life and circumstances are catching up with this guy, I mean, he is being crucified. Uh, He is having the life literally sucked out of him. You suffocate when you die on a cross. This terrible event does not represent how Jesus uh, feels or thinks about him. Life is killing this man. Jesus is saving him. Life is hating, getting even with this man. Jesus is loving This man, life is exacting its full revenge. Jesus is offering this man forgiveness. Jesus is in effect saying, I am not, nor is God, what you are experiencing right now. And I think it'd be helpful to us to take that in. That while life can hurt you and beat you up and break you and abandon you and kill you, God will not. You see, that's not what the Father does. That's not what the Son, that's not what the Spirit does. Jesus came to give life and to give it to the full. He told his disciples that one time. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, he said. And friends, that is Jesus' last message to us before he dies. His message could have been any number of different things, but that's his last message. Luke says this, it was now about the sixth hour, in other words, 12 noon, uh, and the darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. So they've been hanging on the cross now for some hours. And then it says, for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is a, a very significant event. As you know, there was a curtain in the temple. Exodus 26 tells us it was a curtain of blue and purple and scarlet yarn. You would assume that this temple even built in Jesus' day, they were following the same directives that were given in many cases in the Old Testament scriptures. And so this is purple scarlet yarn, finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by skilled craftsmen. Very heavy, very beautiful, ornate curtain. And this curtain separated the Holy of Holies 
That's the place where God was said to dwell. That's the place where the ark was kept from the rest of the temple. That's what this curtain did. It was a wall of separation, really. This curtain dramatized the fact that God was separated from the rest of the world because God is holy and everything in the world is not. And so Matthew tells us that the curtain was torn in two from the top to the bottom. That's an interesting little detail. God was tearing the curtain. That's the point. God was opening the way for people to have access to life with him. That's what God was doing. Because Jesus was taking care of everything that separated his people from the heavenly Holy Father. Jesus was taking care of the problem of sin and evil, you see. That's what's going on here. By embracing evil and taking evil upon himself and being punished for evil, sin in the broken world and sin in you and me, that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. And then Jesus makes his last statement, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And again, there's that word father. This is the father who could have stopped all of this from happening. This is the father who could have kept this from happening. Jesus trusts the father anyway. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, it says he breathed his last. And so here's the question. Have you perhaps drawn some conclusions about God because of events in your life? Uh, Because of what's happened or not happened or what is happening to you? Things that maybe cause you to ask, Where are you, God? Where in the world are you in this? Things that, if you're honest, make you angry with God or maybe stopped you praying to God or connecting with God or maybe resulted in your faith just growing cold. Well, I get that. I do. I mean, we all struggle with drawing these kinds of conclusions when we're struggling with life. I mean, if some awful things have happened to you, If your life has taken some turns for the worse, I understand how you connect God with that suffering that's happening in your life. That is what we tend to do. So ironic to me. When good things are really happening in my life, guess who's responsible for that? Me. It's my brilliance. It's my hard work. I mean, hey, oh yeah, thank you, God. But hey, it's me. Man, when tough stuff is going on in my life, I'm pretty clear that it is God's fault. You see, that's how that works. It's what we tend to do. We get mad. We, we even shake our fist literally or not literally. And we say, where in the world is God in all of this mess? Where are you, God? But friends, what I hope you see is that here is God's message to us, Jesus' message to us. He would say, when we ask that question, where in the world are you? He would say, I am right here. I am right here with you. He would say to those, that thief on the cross, I am just 10 feet away. I am hanging on this cross for you. And he's telling you and me that in this fallen and often evil and disappointing world in which we live, God can be trusted completely. Even if you find yourself hanging on a cross, because even there, Jesus is with you. And while life dishes out some pretty nasty stuff, truth be told, what we find in Jesus is not what we find in life. What we find in Jesus is grace. 
what we find in Jesus' love, what we find in Jesus' mercy and its forgiveness, all of which make it possible for us to conquer, to overcome, to get through the stuff that life throws at us with the hope that it's going to be better. It's going to be better. If not in this life, then in the next. And that, that was Paul's hope. I mean, this is exactly what Paul was thinking about when he wrote these words. And he said, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. He's talking about even when your life is on the line and you may lose it. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I've seen this, friends. I have, because of the privileged position that I have, I, I get oftentimes asked to come into people's lives at very difficult moments. And I have watched people face the nasty, nasty, awful stuff that life can throw at them. People in a hospital or people at a gravesite or people who've received just awful, awful news or uh, people who have lost jobs or people who have seen children die or people they love die or people who've looked at death square in the face and they just try trust. They believe completely in the Father. And by doing so, they overcome. Many of these people are right here in the seats around you, and they show up here week after week after week, and they, they reach up, they reach in, they reach out. They, they worship, they connect, and they serve, and it's incredible to me. And I would just say, leave you with this thought, that if life is beating you down, if it feels to you sort of like you've been crucified, and the question that's been coming to your mind is, God, where in the world are you? I would encourage you to remember the cross and remember that Jesus is, frankly, just as he was then, he's just a few feet away. I mean, if I want to be theologically accurate, he's not even, he's really right here, but work with me, okay? And remember, he's a few feet away, but he's being crucified for you, right? He's being crucified for you so that you can and will overcome the world. So in all things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. Amen? Amen? Pray with me. Father, it's just remarkable to us. Every time, and we've done it so many times, Lord, but every time we reflect on and we think about the realities of the coming of Jesus and the, his death on the cross and who he was dying for and why he was doing it and how it was through his death that actually we encounter life. I mean, it just mystifies us that your wisdom and your power and your glory. It also comforts us, Lord, to know that even if we're being crucified, you're right there with us. And because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we can overcome, even overcome life and death. And so, Father, encourage hearts. If there are some here this morning that are just broken and, and beat down, 
Encourage them, God. Let them know your presence. Let them know your love and help us as a church to come alongside and support and encourage as well. In all of this, Father, we pray in, the G- in, in Jesus' name, amen.